Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching. I want to spend some time on three different uh, modes or types of energy that seem to be present in the Noah story and see if we can pull out something from it that can be sustaining to us as we, as we live through stormy times, not quite as overwhelming as what Noah went through, but sometimes it feels close to it. So the first mode, which is represented in the first verse that I'm bringing to you, and some of these verses are going to be actually just in the Chumash, so if you don't have the text sheet, you can just follow along the Chumash. Chapter 7 of Sheet, verse 22. By the way, I intend this to be somewhat interactive, although some of the audio has not been working great. So if at some point you want to say something, ask something, or comment, that, that's a good thing. So the best thing you can do is to raise your digital hand or raise your hand, and Kenji may be able to spot you um, and, and uh, allow you to unmute yourself. Uh, chapter 7 of Breshit, verse 22. Kol asher nishmat ruach chayim. Everything that had the spirit, the breath of life, in its nostrils, in its nose. Mikol asher becharava. Everything that was on dry land, metu, died. One of the modes of Parshat Noach is utter and complete and non-discriminating and relentless and unforgiving death. It's such a powerful sentence. Suspend disbelief right now when you think about the historicity of this event, just think about what the Torah is trying to tell us. There was a moment on earth where there was essentially no life. The only life that existed, existed in the Teva. Anything that had the very thing that God had used to produce life just a few chapters ago, Nishmat Chaim, God had breathed life into Adam. Now all of that was gone and dead and silent as a result of the flood. That's mode one. Deadness, morbidity, a very awful quiet. Mode two is represented in a series of verses. We're going to focus on the ones from chapter eight, which talk about the sweep and the dynamic movement of the flood. Chapter eight, verse three of Breshit, if you're in the Chumash, or the second verse on the sheets. Vayashuvu Hamaim. This is when the rain stopped and the waters returned. Vayashuvu. I translated here receded, but the verb is returned. Me'al Ha'aretz. They receded from the land. Haloch Vashov. It's a very interesting phrase. Haloch means going. Shov means returning. Maybe this is what waves do. Maybe even when waves recede from an, an onslaught, they still operate according to the laws of physics, either by the pull of the, the gravitational pull of the moon or, or other f- factors, and a going and coming. So it's interesting that when the waters recede, they didn't just recede in one direction, right? Imagine a sink filled with water, and you let go of the plug. When the water recedes, it recedes only in one direction. The waters of the flood did not receive in, recede in only one direction. I translate it here as advancing and returning. So, there was a slow, there was a slowing down of the water 
being on the earth. And there was a, a almost a, a, a frenzied dynamic to that water. It was going, it was coming, it was going, it was coming. At the end of 150 days of that going and coming. So for 150 days, it was sloshing. Sloshing, but if you measure the water level every day, it would be a little bit lower. But it's sloshing. It's moving. It's, um, there's a frenetic energy to it. And that frenetic energy is picked up, again, two verses later. Chapter 8, verse 5. The Hamayim Hayu Haloch V'chasor. So now we, we had haloch v'shuv, right? Going and returning. Now it's going and diminishing. So it's interesting. The Torah is trying to tell us that it's really going down, but it doesn't say the hamayim hayu chasurim, that it was just diminishing. They, they were going and diminishing. Ada chodesh asiri until the 10th month. Ba'asiri bechad lachodesh on the first day of the 10th month. Niru rashay harim. It took 10 months of going and receding, going and receding, going and receding for the mountains to be visible. Just lean into what the Torah is trying to imagine us, have us imagine. The water was so abundant that even for 10 months of a process of receding, it didn't recede enough to show the hot, Everest. Didn't, didn't show enough to show Everest's peak, as it were, until that process. Because of Haloch V'chasor. Going and receding, going and receding, going and receding. That frenzy is picked up again two verses later. Verse, we had verse 3, verse 5, verse 7. When the ark finally comes to rest on one of the mountains, Ararat, that was visible because of this going and receding of the water, the first bird is sent out. Vayishalach Noach dispatched the raven. Vayetze, he went. But how did he go? He didn't just go. He went Yatsovashov. He went going out and coming back. The movement of the raven represents the movement of the water. Nothing is stable on this earth. The dove, a few verses later, will go out and stay out and find an olive, a, a olive branch and come back. But the initial experience of a living thing upon this earth after the flood is mimicking the water and this going and coming, going and returning, going and receding, going out and going in. The Midrash tries to understand why the raven may have been flitting around. And it, it, um, it, this one fanciful reading that suggests that the raven suspected that Noah didn't like it. It was, it had been put in the category of the, um, impure animals, not the pure animals. There were only two of them. It was only the raven and the raven's spouse. And he was nervous, this male raven, that when he went out on this suicide mission, while he was out, that Noah would kill his spouse and that would be the end of ravens. And so he came out and back, out and back, out and back. It's a lovely midrash, maybe. But the pshat is in some way more interesting. What's going on with this um, relentless going and coming? Interestingly, that form of a this and a that, a this and a that, does not only appear in the story of Noah, it also appears, among other places, in the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel. So that's the next source on the page. This is Yechezkel, Ezekiel's famous image of God upon a chariot and the angels of the heavenly hosts who are part of this mystical vision. Ve'ha'chayot, those animals, ratzov 
They were, they were running and returning. They were flitting. They were, they were not standing still. They were frenzied. They were frenetic. Like, like the flash of a lightning where you can't exactly figure out where it is. All of that, I say, is mode two. Mode one, silence. No movement, but a deathly no movement. Number two, as the earth is beginning to wake up, it's waking up with no peace. It's waking up with no serenity. It's waking up with a, a movement that doesn't seem to be like a calm or sustainable way of being. Rushing around, running around. Oh, perhaps like we all feel nearly every day. How many days of the last few months could we identify with being haloch v'shov, haloch v'chasor, yatsov v'shov, ratsov v'shov? It is so hard to hold on to life as opposed to death in mode one. But life that also resists this ceaselessness that doesn't allow the soul to actually calm down. Which brings me to what actually the core text I wanted to share with you, which is not in a chumash. If you don't have the source sheet, you'll have to just listen because it's not present uh, except on the source sheet. And this was written by the Sfat Emet, Rabbi Aryeh Leib of Ger, one of the great Ger Rebbe's Ger, which is kind of a suburb or was a suburb of Warsaw. And he wrote this in 1872 on Rosh Chodesh Mar Right, because the beginning of the month, month of Cheshvan, which you had this week, often obviously coincides with Parshat Noach. Listen to what he says. What he's saying, by the way, is about Shabbos the day. But I think he's also, and even if he isn't, I am saying something about Shabbat the mode. Right? We're, we're, we're right now celebrating Shabbat the day, but I want us to understand this as Shabbat, a modality of living. One of the ways we can think about the holiness of Shabbat is like Noah's Ark, Tevat Noach. During the days of the week, we're all busy, 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 busy. We're all, I'm now interpolating, and we're going and we're coming, we're running and we're fixing, we're stopping and we're starting. We're very busy. In our obligations to this world. And we do live this world. We are not Sufi poets living on a mountaintop. We're not ascetic hermits. We live in the real world. And we, kind of modern and traditional Jews, live very much in the real world. And so for most of the week, we are taking care of the things that this world imposes upon us. Shabbat Kodesh. But on the Holy Shabbat, Yesh Makom Livnei Yisrael. There is a place. I love how they use the word place here. He, 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 he turns Shabbat from a day into a location. There is a place for B'nai Yisrael. Livroach, to flee. Ulahaniach kolzot, to set all of this aside. The first time I really got this, my friends, was my freshman year in college. When I was overwhelmed with work that needed to get done and getting used to a college slate of obligations. And what I felt as the sun was going down on Friday afternoon, knowing that my duties weren't done, but I was being forced, asked, invited by 
Jewish society, to put it all aside and to put on a button-down shirt and to meet with the conservative Jews at Columbia, whatever room they were meeting in, and say, Yadid Nefesh. It just went away. And to take some refuge under the wings of the Shechina. So that's, he's describing Shabbat. And this is like the spreading out of the sukkah of peace, which is what we make reference to in our evening prayer in um, Hashkibenu. We think of Noach and the Teva as escaping death. What the Sfat Emet is saying, he was also escaping a certain aspect of life. He was escaping a certain frenzied haloch vayashov, ratzov aspect of life. And when he was in the teva, what was he doing? He was engaged in this next phrase or two takes an hour to unpack. So we're, we're, there's no way we're going to get through that. But, I want, but it's a, such a significant phrase. Behu habitul l'shoresh hachayut or hachayut. Bitul means nullification. But here it means bitul le. A nullification too means a, a submitting to. It is, it is a nullification of yourself towards, submitted to, l'shoresh ha-chayut, the root of our life force. It's allowing your life force to be more important than the life that you're living for a little bit, from that frenzied back and forth life that you're living. It's a halfway point between modes one and modes two. Mode one of Parshat Noach is there's nothing alive. Mode two of Parshat Noach is that you're living, but you're not calm. Mode three is represented by Noach in the ark, where he is allowed, because he has a break, to quiet himself down and submit to the life force that is there, but we don't access enough. Shekol haolam charev, it is true. The whole world was being destroyed, and that is a tragedy. And therefore, he need to dip, needed to dip in and accept and receive. A new vitality from the source of all life. And who or what is the source of all life? It is God, the Holy One. But you have to understand something about the way the Sfat Ebed probably understood God. He did not, probably did not understand God the way we first thought about God as a six-year-old in religious school, as a being on a chair with a beard. This is a, a, a non-duality theology in Hasidut that says that, that God is not a, an individual being. God is the force of all life. God is the source of vitality. God is what we access when we meditate. God is what we access when we daven. God is what is awaiting us when we can both avoid the death of mode one and escape the frenzy of mode two and be inside our teva and be restored. That is available to us every Shabbos. One of Hasidut's wonderful contributions to Jewish life is reminding us that it's available to us every day, every moment. If you just wait for Shabbat to have Shabbat, 
Shabbat is not enough. I want to say that again. If you're just relying on Shabbat to give you Shabbat, it is not sufficient. I have a cousin, dear cousin, who lives in Israel on a Moshav, one of my favorite places on the world to spend Shabbat. And one of the great things about Shabbat on this Orthodox Moshav is that you go to shul and you come home and you have lunch and then everyone in the village naps. It's a machaya. Like it's, it's like if you, if you happen to wake up in the middle of everyone's nap, you, it, it's as quiet as Yom Kippur. It's just a, 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 a Moshav culture that you restore some of the sleep you didn't get during the week by napping a significant part of the afternoon. And it's lovely, but it's not enough nor is it anything close to, I think, what the Sfat Emmet is going here. He's not saying it's just about closing your eyes and napping. It's about having the ability to access a place of rest and tranquility and serenity so that, to quote one of my friends, Rabbi Sam Feinsmith, Feinsmith you have the power to create your teva, your inner ark, against the storms and against the mortality of the world now. Anywhere you are. Have you ever seen um, Muslims who are going through their day pray wherever they are when it's the time for prayer, right? Jews have a range of time in which we should pray, right? You can do shachrit up until the first fourth of the day. You can do mincha from a half an hour after um, the midday until about sunset. You can do mariv until, depending on who you ask, either till midnight or till the sunrise. Muslims five times a day for prayer are specific slots. You, you have to pray in that very narrow slot. So wherever Muslims are, when they're, if they're devout, they pull out a rug, they bow down, and they create a sanctuary where they are. Many Jews have lost that art. We need the sanctuary on Shabbat morning with our rabbis and sitting in our seats to create sanctuary. The Sfat Emet would say that's ridiculous. You create sanctuary you are Noah creating an ark, forcing yourself to take solace in this mode three whenever you want to, whenever you need to. And I think that constructing our own inner teva may be one of the most significant things we can do in the development of a spiritual self throughout all moments, but particularly now where the storms do seem to be raging. I'm going to pause here and yield to Rabbi Chorney and, and kind of depending on where she ends, because we're doing this slight, slight dynamically, I might take the microphone back. But for now, Rabbi Chorney, I pass the baton to you. I, I hope you'll stay unmuted because this will be more fun if we can have a little conversation, I think. Well, uh, I think you, you, get, get, you get two, two minutes, minutes and then, and then uninterrupted. uninterrupted. Okay. And then... My, my mic is muted during your two minutes. minutes. Oh, no, 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 that's, no that's, that's something else. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, whew. I had a, whew, that was, that was a lot. Uh, I was having <laughs> flashback to recent. Uh, speaking of that, actually, um, I want to start with a story, which is that at the beginning of all this, I, I downloaded a local news app. Um, remember at the beginning of this summer when, when things were getting really heated in the streets near us? And uh, when it was becoming important to know if we might at the end of like a given Saturday have an order by Mayor Garcetti that we shouldn't be leaving our homes. And also on top of that, it might be the case that by the end of a given Saturday that there would be a protest somewhere within our zip code. So I downloaded one of our local news apps and it's just stayed on my phone. And the 
the uh, habit has become that it stays on a certain nightstand in a certain room and it stays palm up. Uh, my phone stays palm up. And uh, and then those alerts show up on the top of my phone. And if it blinks during a time when I walk by it, then I'll be able to check if, God forbid, there's something that I just need to know urgently on my phone. And I was just complaining last Shabbat. I said, it's like 1996 again, because that that phone app is only alerting me that there's like a white Bronco being chased in like Palmdale or something, uh, you know, by police. And like, what do, what do I have this on my phone again on Shabbat? I mean, thank God that that is back to the mode where we're in and our R rate is down, but that's what I'm back to. That's the story to introduce what my response is to, to these amazing and beautiful texts that you brought. I'm so moved by that spot Emet. I really am. And by this image of Teva, this image of Ark and its connection to Sukkah. And I wanted to go back to a piece of our first, our Parsha text, which I put on the source sheet from chapter seven, verse 16. And it's the moment uh, of the going into the Ark and the closing of the door of the Ark, which I never noticed until this year, doesn't happen by Noah's hand himself. So here's the verse. The Habaim Zahar Unkeva. They came into the ark, uh, male and female separately, as you point out. All of the flesh came in. That uh, just as God has commanded them. And God closed it for him. There are a lot of questions. Why did God close it for him? We don't have enough time to unpack it entirely. I appreciate that the, was it the Dad Zakenim or this, uh, I think it brought the Sifte Chachamim, brought the Peshat of it. What's the basic meaning here? Why did God close it? Because Noah had forgotten to close the door of the ark. Had he not closed the door to the ark, who might have come in? Perhaps the wild beasts, perhaps the people who he had not let on the ark, right? Not everybody was allowed, as you pointed out. There were people whose nostrils were still breathing at the beginning of this flood, who weren't at the end, right? But here, the Sifte Chachamim point out, he just shut it against the water. He just shut it against the water so that the water wouldn't come in. But what I love, what I love, 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 is what the Chizkuni says, and it speaks to this idea of Shabbat. Um, like you said, I forget, what was the phrasing that you used, Rabbi Klikdal? You said, Shabbat is not just a day, it's a, did you say a mode? Right, it's not just a time, it's a, it's a way uh, of being. If I didn't, if I didn't say, that, say that, it was, it was something close to that. So, something close to that, so, right? Great. Okay. So, but I'm not. I'm not misquoting you, at least. You're not misquoting. You're not misquoting me. me. It's that. It's that feeling. And the spot Emmet turns, turns it into a place. Into a place. But, right. But but but, but, but I, believe I believe what he means by this. By this. And I'm and sorry, sorry that, that I'm, I'm. No, it's good. I'm hearing my own echo. So if I'm not speaking clearly, I apologize. That it's a place that you can create. Any time, which is which why, it's, why not it's not just, just a moment, not just, not just a, day. a day. It's it, it, it is a makom. We have so the power to create a makom of Shabbat. Good. So I want us to, as we hear this chizkuni, I want us to think about this not just as Shabbat the time, but Shabbat the place, Shabbat the mode, Shabbat the idea, the rest, the idea of a restful concept of being at rest, of being at meditative rest. So here's what the chizkuni says. He says. It was left open. Why was it left open? Because Noah wasn't exactly sure if he was done collecting all the creatures. 
because Noah just didn't know. Like Noah wasn't a he wasn't a zoologist. He didn't know every creature. He didn't he wasn't aware. How, how was he supposed to know? Because God had never at least in the shot in the narrative in the spoken narrative of the Torah, he never gets the command, "Okay, they're all on board." Right? Go ahead and close it. He never gets that command. So without that command, he doesn't know. And so he gets these words, "Lo hayamakir kol minim shebabru." He just doesn't know. He just doesn't know. He doesn't know every mean, every species. He doesn't, he, he can't, he doesn't makir them. He's not familiar with them. He can't possibly imagine every creature that would have been on board. And so he's afraid he might have forgotten one. So I imagine Noah leaves the door open. That's how the Chizkuni imagines it. He leaves it open because what if, what if it needs to come in? And I want us to leap from there to this idea of every time you have ever tried to put yourself in a Shabbat mode, in a Shabbat space, in a meditative place, and you've left a door open, metaphorically, to the non-Shabbati mode around you, because you're afraid that you might be missing something around you, right? Because it's so hard to leave the other world outside because to fully enter the ark, to enter that makom, to go into that Shabbat place is to fully trust that it's okay to give yourself that gift, to fully enter that place. And that if you miss the notification that a white Bronco is being chased in Palmdale or even if just for a few minutes, you miss an even more urgent note than that about the world, it's okay. It's going to be okay. It's very hard. And I even want to reach into that spot and met for just a second. I'm going to willfully misread it. Rabbi Klegfeld, are you ready? I'm going to really, I'm, I'm going to willfully misread the bitul. The who ha bitul l'shoresh ha'chayut or ha'chayut. This idea that you have to believe in the bitul. You have to believe that you can let there be some nullification. And I think that that was what was happening when God closed the door on the ark. You have to believe that there is a little bit of nullification that happens, that you let there be some bitul, some nullification of the world around you when the door closes to the teva to the Ark of Shabbat that you enter, that you're going to miss some things, that some things get locked out for a little bit. But that is a holy sacrifice of entering that space. I'm curious what you think about that. I think there are many people, um, many of the people on the Zoom included, who are for the, in the name of building a more communal Shabbat, are using technologies that they otherwise would not have used on Shabbat, which are linking us to one another on Shabbat, but are also keeping, I think, more of those doors open on the Ark. Therefore, ironically, paradoxically, making the Ark of Shabbat less of an Ark and a refuge. And I don't mind admitting that I'm struggling with that myself because of the ways in which we have tried to harness the sanctity of connectivity to create refuge on Shabbat, more of us have literal or proverbial alerts 
on our screens that are keeping us yatso vashov and ratso vashov and haloch v'chasor going and coming and coming and going. And that prevents that descent. You know, whenever I start a meditation, I ask people to close their eyes and feel themselves descending into themselves. And it's a, it's a wonderful feeling, whether you meditate regularly or, regularly or not. It's amazing how quick it happens when you close your eyes not to fall asleep, but just to descend into a spiritual realm. How quickly and completely you can close that door. But we resist it because Betul doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to let yourself go, even if it feels great to let yourself go. So I leave this for us to think about how we are letting our actual Shabbat be too intruded upon by Chol, by non-Shabbat, by the things that the Sfat Emet says are only to be done during the week, number one, and how much work we can do to create inner arcs that we can enter whatever day of the week it is and whatever our GPS location is because that sort of letting yourself be recharged by the source of all life is one of the things that makes being alive worth it. And the story of the ark was that Life got a second chance. And I think each of the moments that we allow ourselves into our inner arc, whether on Shabbat or on a Wednesday afternoon in my meditation or whenever, we give our own life a second chance. And so we'll end with these words from one of the most wonderful of Shabbat Zemers, the traditional songs sung at a Shabbat meal, Yom Shabbaton Ein Lishkoach, the day of Shabbat. You should not forget it. This is on the source sheet. Zichro kareach hanichoach, when you remember it, which is a reference to Kiddush, which we're about to do, when you make reference to Shabbat, it is like the reach nichoach, it is like the pleasing odor that the sacrifice is made to God. Yona matza vo manoach, the dove found within it manoach, which is a play on noach, right? So we're playing with, with uh, Noah's ark imagery, the dove found rest in it. Visham yanuchu, and there, once again, a place, there in that place called Shabbat, Yanuchu, will rest, also playing up on the name Noach, Yegi'e Koach, all who are weary. And we are all weary. And so we need to find and create our Shabbatot to rest and to recharge. Yom Shabbatonein Lishkoach Zichro kereyach hanichoach Yonamat savo manoach Besham yanuchu yegiechoach Yonai nanai nanai Matsavo manoach Vesham, Vesham, Yanuchu, Yigiecho, Awawawawach, Yonai, Nanai, Nanai, Ayayayayay, Matsavo, Manoach, Vesham, Vesham, Yanuchu, Yegiecho, Awawawawach, 
been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.